Hello, and welcome to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast about business leaders on the front lines of new thinking. I'm Peter Tofano, the Dean of Said Business School here at the University of Oxford. And in this episode, I'm also your host. Recorded as part of our series of live online events, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jillian Tepp. Jillian is chair of the editorial board and editor-at-large of the Financial Times, creator of the phenomenal Moral Money newsletter, and author of her newest book, Anthrovision. The book is a clear and compelling demonstration of the power of anthropological thinking to help us understand how we work, live, and lead. So here's episode three, Anthrovision, how anthropology can explain business and life. So Jillian, thank you for joining us in your otherwise incredibly busy schedule. I'm a dyed-in-the-wool economist. And I, you know, sometimes you see these in book blurbs, but I literally couldn't put this book down. I started in the evening and the next morning I finished it. Dr. Tet, and in this year where, you know, people using their doctor's titles has been contentious, who I've never heard use that doctor title before, has her doctorate from Cambridge. She's combined the power of careful listening and superb communication and writing skills to make her readers better informed and more alert to the world around them. And in one final tribute before we begin, I mentioned to one of my junior colleagues that I would have the privilege of interviewing Jillian today, and she wrote me an email right back. I'll quote from the email. I met Jillian in 2008 in Montreal, where she was the keynote speaker for the Economic Anthropology Subfield Meeting of the American Anthropological Association's Annual Meeting. That's a mouthful. She was incredibly generous with her time and humble. I remember those qualities to the day. And if that's uh, you know true 13 years ago, not only is she a great thinker, a great observer, a great writer and communicator, but also an amazing person. Jillian, over to you. And I wanna start easy with this because you probably most of the listeners to today have never kind of taken an anthropology course, have read a book about anthropology, and you point out that anthropology is far less studied than, say, economics or psychology. For those people who missed out, can you kind of summarize what is anthropology all about? What's the core kind of approach of anthropologists? Well, thank you very much indeed, Peter. And it's so great to be talking to you. In fact, you are the first um, event I've done to really talk about the book. And I'm delighted to be talking to you at Said Oxford Business School because the reality is that outside the world of anthropology, people who work in business or finance or economics or accounting um, or tech, for the most part, don't know what anthropology is. We've all learned why it pays to import a bit of psychology into your thinking, books like Danny Kahneman or a wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, or Richard Taylor's books, all explain to us why psychology matters. People like Niall Ferguson are telling us why history matters, particularly now in the pandemic. Um, we've had people like Malcolm Gladwell writing about neuroscience, but anthropology is not well known. And at its core, it's about the study of man. I say man because the word comes from the Greek study of man, and they didn't have much sense of political correctness in those days. But it's really about trying to understand what human beings do and think and say and how they act. Now, you might say, well, isn't that what psychology does? The answer is yes, it does, but it tends to focus on individuals. And what anthropology really looks at is the social and cultural context and the assumptions above all else that shape the way that we behave as groups that for the most part, we're just not aware of at all. And the key defining trait about how anthropology does that 
is that it tries to look at societies and cultures bottom up um, to get what people call the worm's eye view, not the bird's eye view, by actually observing people themselves. It tries to look at everything to see how it's interrelated and to focus not just on what people say, but the gap between what they say and do and what they don't say, what we call social silences, which matter enormously. And anthropology tries to do that in a comparative cross-cultural perspective. And it does that for two reasons. Firstly, the act of thinking yourself into the mind of the other, someone who seems strange and different from you, gives you empathy for another point of view that is completely crucial in a global world. But also, there's a second win-win, because if you put yourself into the mind of someone who seems strange and really try and walk in their shoes and embrace a different mindset, at least for a while, that also gives you an ability to look back at yourself with more perspective and see those social silences or all those parts of the world you ignore, those blind spots. So that, in essence, is what anthropologists try to do. And the same principle applies whether you are in Papua New Guinea, whether you're out in the Cook Islands, or whether you're in the corporate boardroom. It really pays to have that insider-outsider perspective and look at social silences. And let's pick up right there. It's clear as a practicing anthropologist and journalist, you not only listen to what people say and do, but also what they don't. So it's really the social science of social silence. It's hard enough to observe what's in front of you. How do you observe what's not said or what's not in view? Can you give us an example of how the dog that didn't bark is what you're focusing on? Well, that's an incredibly good question. And the reality is we live in a world where we're drowning in noise all the time, particularly in the media, by the way, and where most people are just so incredibly busy um, just getting their job done that it's very hard to actually look at what you're not looking at or to think about the tasks that you're not fulfilling that are not directly in front of your um, nose. Um, but to give you one practical example where um, it really impacted my reporting and subsequently impacted the wider global and financial um, system. Um, when I was a reporter back in 2004, um, I was temporarily running something called the Lex column on the FT. That's the corner which writes about corporate finance. And one day I was asked to write a memo outlining what we should be writing about. So I started off writing about uh, writing a list of all the things that we were already covering and that everyone was talking about. So the tech sector, industry, manufacturing and in the financial markets, um, I wrote about things like the equity market because that's the noise. That's what everyone talks about all the time in the media and what most investors think about. And I subsequently went around the city of London trying to think like an anthropologist and look at what people were not talking about and where a lot of the activity was happening that wasn't discussed. And it occurred to me that actually an enormous amount of activity was happening in the world of derivatives and credit, which the media barely talked about at all and politicians completely ignored. So I became very curious and started digging into that world and eventually wrote something called the Iceberg Memo, which pointed out that the financial system was like an iceberg. You had the equity markets poking above the surface, but they weren't actually most of the activity. Um, so I dug into the world of credit derivatives, um, started doing that in 2005, and discovered, as we now know, post-great financial crisis, that there was an incredible story bubbling there. But that example of trying to actively look at the social silence instead of just the noise, can be applied to almost any sphere. 
How do you do that? Well, sometimes just trying to stop and ask yourself, if I was a Martian and landed where I am today, what would I see that I'm ignoring? Sometimes just trying to ask someone who's an outsider to peer into your world and point out the blind spots that you're missing can be really helpful. In many ways, that's what an anthropologist does. Sometimes just actively trying to embrace another point of view um, and think yourself into the mind of someone else and then look back at yourself. That can You can do that too. Or else just simply ask yourself, if I was to keep a daily diary of what I'm basically doing or what my company's doing and compare that to what we're talking about, what would the gap be? What am I missing? What is the area of social silence? So I want to pick up one kind of side note in that story. We'll get back to kind of anthropology and anthrovision for a moment. But in the book, you make, you know, you make the point when you move to Lex and then to the capital markets part of the, of the paper, it wasn't exactly something that you were, you know, eagerly awaiting, shall I say? I think I, I get that, uh, you know, from between the lines and not so much between the lines. Yet in this space, you found a career opportunity or an opening that you kind of capitalized in a big way. So, you know, many of the listeners here will be young people and they may find themselves pushed into a side thing that they hadn't anticipated. You made an incredible kind of discovery there. So tell me about how you felt when you moved over into the capital market side, um, because clearly at the end, when you were seen as this prophetess of, you know, you saw the financial crisis before everybody else, it was great. But, you know, there was, there was probably a journey in there. And, and oh. during that journey, how was it in terms of listening? Yeah, absolutely, Peter. And listen, so, you know, it's very easy for people early in their careers to look at somebody like myself who appears to have had some success and assume that somehow the line has gone smoothly upwards. And that's particularly true, I think, for young women looking at senior women, because um, senior women have got to where they are, are often quite reluctant to admit to setbacks or so things not going right. Um, and one of the messages I'm always desperately keen to stress to people is actually, you know, my career, like most careers, has had incredible zigzags, ups and downs, and things haven't gone to plan. And, you know, some of what where I've got to today is a result of hard work. A lot of it's also due to luck or bad luck as well and trying to respond. So in my case, what happened was that I was temporary head of the Let's Column. Um, I actually applied to run the Let's Column full time and was turned down. Um, I applied for various other jobs. I had inside the FT, these things happen. You know, you have good times in your career and bad times in your career. Um, I had written this iceberg memo saying that I thought the financial media was really missing a trick by just focusing on the visible parts of the iceberg and ignoring some of the subterranean stuff. And, you know, that didn't make me wildly popular unnecessarily. Um, and so then when the capital markets opportunity came up, although in many ways it was ideally suited for me, I was a bit nervous of taking it, to be honest, um, partly because I was also pregnant at the time. And like many women who are in large institutions, you know, I was terrified of being sh shunted off onto the mummy track, as we call it. Um, but I did take it because I could see some inklings. I had some inkling of how much opportunity there might be. Um, the capital markets team at the time was not a high status part of the FT. The glory high status visible parts of the FT were teams like the economics department. Um, they had, a, and I'd actually started my career there. They had a lovely office overlooking the river, St. Paul's. They sat next to the editor's room. Um, and the capital markets team was right the other end of the building, 
um, in the basement overlooking the trash cans. So, you know, there was part of me thinking, yikes, you know, I'm on the mummy track. But the reality is that when I got there, partly because it wasn't very closely monitored or scrutinized, I had tremendous freedom to reinvent um, the way we were working. Um, but I also had tremendous freedom to start poking around in the shadowy bits of the iceberg or the areas of social silence and see what an amazing story was there and also what incredible opportunity. And you did that so well. I think there's some quote from Moby Dick about dropping your buckets. Um, we can all Google that at some point. Um, but thanks for that kind of aside, because I think it's important for people, especially my young people, listeners, to understand the journeys that we're all on. But back maybe to anthrovision. Um, I'm an economist and other social scientists, and we use the term science in, in quotes, start from hypotheses or guesses, which then we say that we test against data. But that doesn't seem to be the approach of anthropologists. But clearly you select sites and individuals with some theory in mind, like your doctoral work on wedding rituals. What's the difference between an anthropologist hunch that gets them started on listening and an economist hypothesis? Well, I think the main difference is, um, go back to that old cliche contact with the enemy, if you like, or not the enemy in this case, but people you're studying and hopefully are very friendly and empathetic with. Many of the intellectual tools we use start with a click up theory and start by essentially creating a bounded way to test that theory or experiment and really focus on the inputs and exclude a lot of the variables. Now, obviously, like any stereotype, that stereotype has plenty of exceptions. But, you know, there is this idea, certainly in the natural sciences, which has bled into many of the, um, in some parts of social sciences, that you have a theory, you have a hypothesis, you create a model, you test it out, um, and then hopefully you can, it can be repeatable. Anthropology um, really starts in a different way by trying to, or modern anthropology does, by trying to absorb what you see with as few preconceptions as possible and to try and at least initially really look at the world in a holistic way without prejudging what's important. Now, in reality, of course, that's very difficult because, you know, anyone who's written an academic proposal knows you have to indicate what you're going to go and study. And so anthropologists often go out with some rough idea in their head about what they're interested in. But one of the goals of anthropology is to constantly challenge and test your preconceptions and to change course if necessary. And in my case, when I did my research, I went off into um, Soviet Central Asia, a place called Tajikistan, and um, basically um, spent the first um, few months working with one theory, which was dominant in the world of Central Asian studies in the 1990s, partly because this was a question that worried the CIA. Um, sorry, in the 1980s, not 1990s. Um, I forget how old I am. Um, but basically the question in the 1980s, which dominated all the Western policymakers, was will there be a revolution in places like Tajikistan that could topple the Soviet regime like there was in Afghanistan. And you have to remember Tajikistan, where I did my work, is next to Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, there'd be the Mujahideen who'd been fighting the Soviet communists. And so groups like the CIA used to call Soviet Central Asia the soft underbelly because they assumed that Islam and communism was fundamentally opposed to each other. And that was the area most likely to create a rebellion against Moscow. So that was my framework. I got into the got into the field, I got into a Tajik village where I lived for a year, um, and started looking at events through that lens, 
and then realized after about four or five months that actually I was wrong. That in fact, Islam and communism were not diametrically opposed on the ground in the village in terms of how villagers were living or even how they saw the world. You know, Westerners might see the world that way. The Tajik villages I lived amongst did not. Um, so I had to go back and really rethink a lot of my theories and ideas. And in fact, my thesis ended up being on precisely the opposite, which was why some kind of accommodation had occurred on the ground between Islam and communism. And why at the time, it seemed to me that in fact, Central Asia was not going to be the soft underbelly or the place most likely to revolt. It later turned out I was correct. When the Soviet Union did break up, the um, revolution started in the Baltic republics and Tajikistan was almost the last republic to break away. Um, but that's just an example of the kind of open-minded curiosity and willingness to rethink that shapes a lot of the anthropology discipline. And which frankly, I think a lot of business leaders and financiers could benefit too. In the book, you talk about the uh, kind of exchanges um, and specifically the, the notion of exchange or barter is not about primitive society, but in fact, you use the concept of exchange and barter to explain basically the entire digital world, the Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, where people trade their data in exchange for something. So maybe you can talk about that concept. And, and uh, one thing you didn't talk about the book is how that exchange or barter is influenced by something called GDPR. <laughs> That's a great question, Peter. Thank you. Um, well, one of the reasons why people tend to discount anthropology, and there are many reasons, including, by the way, I should stress, some of which are the fault of anthropologists themselves. But one reason is that they think that anthropology is kind of hippy-dippy. Um, it only looks at ancient tribes or exotic faraway peoples, and the whole thing smells of Indiana Jones. Um, and, you know, that's understandable in a lot of ways, because, in fact, in 19th century, anthropologists did mostly study um, what they considered to be primitive, exotic, faraway tribes. And I put all of those words in quotations. And there was a sense of swashbuckling, adventuring, and all that kind of stuff. But today, anthropologists very much look at the Western world, not just um, non-Western worlds. Um, there's likely to study an Amazon warehouse, frankly, as in, in the Amazon jungle. And the point is that many of the approaches and ideas that anthropologists have that were first developed in non-Western contexts are actually very relevant to where we are in the modern industrialized world as well. And the question of barter is one of those, because anyone reared on Adam Smith will have imbibed, almost without realizing it, the prejudice or the idea that barter is something that just cavemen do with beads and berries and um, bits of cloth. And that as soon as you actually historically invented money and credit, and that basically wiped away barter. Well, that's not true historically, as people like David Graeber, the anthropologist have pointed out, or Caroline Humphreys at Cambridge. Um, in fact, barter has been very much concurrent with credit and monetary-based systems. And if anything, um, it seems that credit came first, not barter. But the second reason it's really interesting is that if you look at the world of tech today, what you can see very, very clearly is that there is actually an explosion in the use of barter on digital platforms because it's made it very simple. And by that, I don't mean the type of barter that happens when you have lots of sustainability-minded communities swapping, say, babysitting for haircuts. I mean, the entire social media space is based on this idea 
that you essentially give up your data in exchange for services. Um, you know, you give up your personal information when you click on a Google search or something like that. And in exchange, you get an incredibly valuable service. Now, some people say, might say, well, that's not barter because there isn't um, a deliberate negotiation of terms and people aren't even aware half the time explicitly of that exchange. That's an entirely fair point. But at the same time, what you do have happening is a massive set of exchanges without money, which we just don't have the tools to analyze. I mean, in the American legal system, the only way to measure whether there's an antitrust abuse is by looking at consumer prices. There's no way in the legal system to really measure what happens if there's monopoly abuse without monetary prices. Um, economists tend to measure almost everything in life through money as opposed to non-monetary exchanges. Um, and when people evaluate companies, they look at the things that be can be counted on their balance sheet, um, not the exchanges that happen without money. So there's a big problem here. But if we ignore barter, you really don't understand most of what drives Silicon Valley today. And I use the word barter because, frankly, it's the only word we got in English to describe a non-monetary exchange. And I also passionately believe that if we're going to build a tech sector which um, people actually have more trust and uh, has more credibility, then we have to mention the word barter because once you word mention the word barter, you recognize there's a two-way exchange happening with data. It's one of the reasons I think that many consumers actually accept um, losing some of their privacy because they like getting the other services back. But then we can start talking about how to improve the terms of trade of barter. That's a key thing. Because to build a better tech sector, we have to make that barter trade more transparent, more empower consumers in, in relation to it. Um, they need to be able to have data portability between different um, providers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that all starts with recognizing something that economists often don't, which is that not everything in life happens via the medium of money. Excellent. So let's go to the second part. So does GDPR solve that problem? Does it help? Does it hurt? Does it make visible the invisible exchanges? I think the GDPR actually does in some ways, because what you're trying to do with GDPR is to improve the terms of trade of barter. You're not saying you can't swap data for services. And by the way, I don't think most people want to actually re-intermediate re these exchanges with money, in my view, because, you know, barter is pretty efficient a lot of the time in the tech world today. Um, but GDPR does say we're going to try and improve the terms of trade for consumers by giving them more protection in terms of how their data is used, more awareness if they want, although, in fact, most consumers don't take it. Um, I think there is a big missing piece of GDPR, which is, to my mind, one of the crucial things that have to happen next in tech is that consumers need portability of their data. Um, in much the same way that they have portability of bank accounts and the onus in financial services is on banks to make it easy to swap um, service provider, not the consumer. If you have that in the tech world, whereby I could switch social media accounts or platforms and stuff really easily, if you had that in the tech world, there might start to be more genuine competition between big tech, tech companies. A question from Simon in London. How do you explain the rise uh, of social media influencers? Are they here to stay? Um, that's a great question. And I think what you're seeing there is something which, in fact, one of the Oxford Said's own professors talked about, which is a shift in the patterns of trust. Um, as Rachel Botsman says in her book, which is brilliant, um, essentially, 
there's two types of trust um, in, in, that glue societies and communities together. Um, and this, again, is a core thought of anthropology. You either get vertical patterns of trust where people essentially trust in a leader or an institution or a hierarchy to glue them together, or you have horizontal forms of trust where people kind of trust each other, their peer group, and essentially collaborate and operate as a group in that way. Now, historically, um, small face-to-face -face communities have tended to have more horizontal trust, um, you know, and that's still very prevalent in many, many settings where you know your office workers, you know your peer group, you know your neighbours, and you kind of all hang together and trust each other. But obviously, as groups get bigger, you start trusting more in um, vertical systems because you can't have everyone knowing everyone else. Um, and that's why you get these sort of companies, institutions, where essentially you're trusting a CEO. Now, what is fascinating about the digital world in the 21st century is that although peer-to-peer -peer horizontal trust used to be small groups, um, the launch of digital platforms means you've created mechanisms to have peer group horizontal trust on a massive scale. Um, Rachel calls this distributed trust. And that's kind of what drives um, platforms like Uber it drives things like Airbnb. In some ways, it even drives something like Bitcoin, where you have ways of essentially verifying each other online and you essentially build trust that way. Now, social media influencers, in some ways, are tapping into that because what you're having there is the ability of people to start influencing to a massive degree people through these horizontal networks and channels. And that's quite different from the traditional patterns, which used to be much more vertical. Um, based. I mean, to give you an example, you know, in the past, if you're going to go to a restaurant, you might look at Zagat's for an um, advice from an expert, someone who you trusted upwards. Now you're more likely to look horizontally at, say, you know, online rating systems or even social media influencers who can actually get into the system. Now, that's open to a lot of abuse and manipulation. And sometimes what seems like peer-to-peer -peer influence is actually behind the scenes um, shaped by powerful corporations in a more vertical model. But it's a fascinating pattern and it shows that one of the most important things that I think many people have missed in the world of consumer goods um, research and marketing in recent years is that because we have the illusion in the Western world that we're all individualists with agency to shape and choose our own identities, um, we think that we, in our own heads, are making all our consumer decisions. Um, and so psychology, individual psychology, has been a very dominant force in the world of consumer goods marketing. But anthropology says, actually, no, it's not just about the individual. We're shaped by groups, too, in this horizontal way, and it matters. So long way to answer, but again, I think that reinforces my point about anthropology being valuable. So I want to take a question from Joanna in Frankfurt. Can you expand on the specific way how a worm's eye view differ from the bird's eye view and in somewhat tug in cheek um, that birds tend to eat worms? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. I better be careful about that metaphor then going forward. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I'll give you a tangible example. If an economist is studying, say, educational systems, um, they might gather all the macro level statistics about um, schools across the UK. Um, they might do all kinds of models or something, looking at you know cost benefit analysis in schools. Um, they might very much look top down across a macro picture. And they would probably define their field of study as being schools or education. 
Um, if an anthropologist was looking at um, uh, education, they'd probably go and sit inside a schoolroom um, for a month and just observe everything. And they'd probably start with just one or two schools who can have an in-depth face-to-face study and they'd try and see how pupils in the school and teachers were experiencing everyday life, um, bottom up, if you like. Um, now, the flaw of the anthropology model is that it can be subjective, it can be very localized. You often end up extrapolating from small to big in ways that can be dangerous. Um, and it can also you know, be undirected and irritatingly vague to many people who are economists because you don't end up with you know, a neat PowerPoint or anything like that or a nice algorithm or computer model. Um, the upside is that you can often get a very different perspective from the bird's eye view and a much richer, deeper perspective. Um, and they don't have to be either or, they actually complement each other. Um, I sometimes joke that um, anthropology can act a bit like salt in food in that when you add it in, it makes other ingredients taste better and binds them together. And so anthropology plus economics is a very powerful combination or anthropology plus finance or anthropology plus, you know, an MBA, I'd say. Well, in fact, I run a research project at Oxford and we have economists and anthropologists working side by side and I can attest to what you're saying. So Jillian, in your book, you talk about the Hawthorne effect, the famous Hawthorne effect, that people behave differently if they know they're being observed. And a number of books and movies have as well as academic studies have captured this. Um, and anthropologists, I think, worry a great deal about destroying the cultures they observe. How do you walk this line with a topic like moral money, where I think you actually have a point of view that companies and markets need to accept the responsibilities of their actions or inactions? Well, there's several different um, questions there. Firstly, anthropologists do worry enormously about changing the material they study. Um, both on a micro level of in terms of like if I'm observing a group or living amongst them can I really pretend to be observing anything remotely neutral way and anthropologists tied themselves up in knots in a kind of post-structuralist way in the late 20th century um, and sometimes tried to almost commit intellectual suicide by saying they had no right to study anything which you know on one level is I understand the qualms but it's also not very useful and you do the best you can to acknowledge how you may be affecting people around you, but also recognizing that it's still worthy of study. Um, on a macro level, anthropologists often won't worry about whether their presence in communities which have not had a lot of contact in the past with Western, um, Western societies might be influenced or infiltrated or even destroyed by contact, um, partly as a result of anthropologists. And there's a big um, field of um, literature about that. Um, so that's very much an issue and it's something anthropologists are still grappling with. But in terms of how we as a journalist, and I'm really talking the journalists, um, respond to this question, um, something like moral money in many ways epitomizes the problem or the challenge, but also the potential opportunity um, in the sense that, you know, moral money seeks to be neutral and comment on the sustainability movement. Um, you know, it's drummed into journalists that you try and keep um, opinion and reporting separate. Um, it's becoming very hard these days as the media um, world changes to embrace things like newsletters, which are kind of a hybrid. Um, but we try to cover the waterfront and neither endorse nor excessively um, knock down the sustainability movement. We try and simply you know, expose what's happening for good and bad. 
Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We don't always manage to do it, but that's what we're trying to do. And yet at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that the very um, fact there is something like Moral Money as a platform on the Financial Times covering sustainability has certainly acted as a spur to debate, we think anyway, um, in this world. And so we're not just a neutral fly on the wall observer. The very fact we're covering something is fostering change in itself, both good and bad. Um, you know, we are very proud that we do appear to have played a role in setting the debate quite often in this world at Moral Money. Um, and so that's just a predicament. And at the end of the day, you can beat yourself up about it and get into intellectual knots or, as I say, commit intellectual suicide and say there's no point in doing anything. Or you simply say we're going to try to the best of our ability to cover the world of sustainability, um, to uncover these social silences. And much of what um, sustainability is about doing is actually about trying to get companies and investors to think about things that used to be an area of social silence or an externality to the model, um, like the environment. Um, we're going to try and do that and do it to the best of our ability, but be constantly self-critical about where we are failing. And so with that in mind, and by the way, I'm going to ask you to do a big shout out to Moral Money because I think we both assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, but it's this incredibly popular newsletter that you created, I don't know, two years ago, and it's got incredible circulation, but I'll put that in there somewhere, make sure everybody gets the, the great... Okay thing about moral money, but a question from Catherine that may or may not relate to what you've just said. Uh, Catherine Chung, how do we use an anthropologist's angle to help organizations and leadership to motivate changes and embrace resistance to changes? Well, I think that actually anthropology is brilliant in this respect for several reasons. One is that at the very core of anthropology um, is the idea, to quote Genevieve Bell, who's been an anthropologist working Intel, that you can't assume that everyone else thinks the way that you do, which is incredibly obvious. And everyone kind of knows that, but it's also incredibly common that executives forget. Because you know, if you have slithered your way up the greasy pole of a corporate hierarchy um, and end up sequestered in some nice fancy corner office and are incredibly busy, and have to constantly project self-confidence and tell everyone else and yourself that you know what you're doing. Um, it's so easy to end up being cloistered or bunkered in a pretty narrow worldview to get tunnel vision and to assume that you know you think you are self-evidently right and therefore everyone else must think like you. And I say that not because I'm you know using some kind of theoretical framework, but because I've seen that exactly happen on Wall Street. Um, and in the tech sector, just to name two examples, um, you know, I've often said the reason why the 2008 crisis happened was not because financial company CEOs and masters of the universe were mad, evil, greedy or crazy, although maybe a few were, but it's because they were beset with tunnel vision and assumed that everyone else was thinking the way that they, they do. Same in, in tech sector. Um, so the first thing you do if you want to actually affect change in a company is to embrace the core anthropology idea of empathy and listening to people and trying to see the world through other people's eyes. And also to try and see the social silences in your own company, which might be blocking change. Um, and it may be very hard for you to see that, but um, the reality is that, you know, often having outsiders come in and explain that um, is much more effective. And to go back to the Hawthorne study, and this is a very sort of 
shallow example um, and is very dated, but when the Hawthorne study took place, and this was when a group of anthropologists went in and studied um, um, big, big telecoms company in the 1930s in Chicago, um, the senior manager there couldn't understand why some of their own employees were so um, uninterested, it seemed, in getting promoted and getting paid more money. And it just didn't make sense to them looking at the world through their eyes. Um, and it wasn't until people did bottom-up worm's eye study and actually spoke to the employees and looked at how they were operating, they realized that their culture had developed amongst the workforce that if somebody actually got promoted, they often got ostracized by their group and socially punished. So actually the incentive structure for them at the base level wasn't as obvious as the managers thought. And you know, in my book, I talk about similar examples of General Motors, where um, you know, essentially the managers of General Motors had no idea what was happening down in the locker rooms on the factory floors and why so many of their grandiose plans simply kept running into the dust because of what was happening at the grassroots of the company. So, which is a great chapter in the book. Uh, in, a, in a spirit of a little bit of intellectual whiplash here, um, a question from Tafa Agassians. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing both the name and the question too. Do you think that Platonist philosophy in the core culture of Tajikistan might be closer to Soviet communism than capitalism? Well, I think that's a great question. I suspect there aren't that many people on the um, watching who have a great sort of passionate interest in the philosophy and you know intellectual thought of Tajikistan. You know, I do. Um, one of my many frustrations today is that people outside um, Central Asia, particularly in the West, think that Islam is a monolithic whole um, and tend to write off a lot of you know Islamic cultures because they're in prejudice um, or assume that it's all basically you know similar to Wahhabi. And thinking, um, in fact, in Tajikistan, there was a very rich tradition of Sufism, which is a very synchronistic thought. Um, it's not a fundamentalist way of looking at the world at all. And it's much more about collaboration and all the rest of it. And yes, it probably is more similar to um, a sort of communist, socialist, collectivist mentality than a, a capitalist one. Um, in fact, briefly, the reason why I came to think that the Soviet communist system and Islam had coexisted quite well on the ground in Tajikistan was actually less to do with that and more to do with the way that the Tajiks were dividing their space um, and genders and symbolically recognizing a, a very big gap between public and private, male and female space and symbols and very broadly, very, very roughly speaking, the public male sector was associated with Islam and communism the private female domestic sector was associated with Tajik Islamic identity. And because they were separated in the minds and lives and physical arenas of everyday life, they managed to coexist quite happily. Um, it's something which Western people reared in a Protestant Christian tradition find it almost impossible to understand the idea that you can have situational difference to that degree within one culture, because Protestant Christianity tends to presume that we have to be consistent in all areas of our life. That's a core idea within the Christian tradition. Um, but it's not universal. And the core point, without going into details, is that you know we can't just assume that the cultural assumptions that we have unthinkingly absorbed from our own environment, whether it's a microclimate of the CEO suite or a wider Western culture, we cannot assume that they're held by everyone else. And if we do, we end up making mistakes and missing opportunities too. 
Great. Well, thank you for that detailed answer to a very careful question. I want to focus a bit on the difference between anthropologists and journalists for a moment. So as an anthropologist, you have the luxury of an extended period of observation. You were saying in Tajikistan that, you know, what you concluded at the beginning or you, what you thought in the beginning was different than what you concluded at the end of six months. And I suppose if you were you know, a journalist and you had a daily deadline and you had to write the article after two months or one month, it might've been different than the article you'd write after a year. So how do you, how does the difference between the timeframes that an anthropologist have and the timeframes that say a journalist have where you're on deadline all the time, affect how you practice anthrovision or does it make you do your journalism different, holding back because you're not quite sure if you've got the story right. Well, you make a great point there. And the reality is that in partly it's a question of scale and speed in that anthropologists write and study slowly um, for a very small audience and have the ability to think about nuance and context and basically be very thoughtful. Um, unfortunately, journalists are often operating very fast and they have to produce content which needs to be quickly understood by a very large group of people. And invariably, that will lead to mistakes, um, errors as much of omission as actual deliberate mistakes. Um, and it leads them to basically often pandered stereotypes. I mean, to give one example linked to my last um, answer, um, when I went back to Tajikistan as a journalist in 1993 and 94 during the Civil War, you know, I realized that most of the other journalists were saying, the war had happened because Islamic fundamentalists were battling against the communist regime. Um, and it was all about Islamic fundamentalism, basically creating this war. And in fact, on the, on the ground, the reality was much more subtle than that, in that it really was an inter-regional fight. Um, it wasn't really about Islam versus communism at all. Now, on one level, I don't blame journalists for writing that because that basically pandered to their own ideas. Um, or rather fitted with their own ideas. And it was something their own readers could understand. Um, but at the same time, it illustrates a need for a constant critical reappraisal in journalism. And above all else, a willingness to explore both social silences, what people aren't talking about, and to think about how the cultural assumptions and tribalism of the media is affecting their own view of the world. Um, the tragedy today is that doing that requires time and space and money and journalism and the media it's under so much pressure that it often doesn't have any of that and on top of that you know journalists are fighting for attention in a world that's there's a lot of competition for attention and it's very noisy the last point i'd make though is that one trick i often try and tell people is to imagine dominoes not in the sense of dominoes all topping toppling over in a chain reaction which is how the metaphors you normally use but if you think about how a domino game is played in that you have two halves of a domino piece and the game is trying to match up one half of your piece with another half of someone else's piece, but then you have the other half, which can be different. And so good journalism today, I think, finds a hook that the audience will recognize, even if it actually reinforces existing stereotypes and they hook the audience into read on that basis, but then gives them the other half of domino an entirely different set of information that might expose social silences that gets them to rethink. So you get people to think, to read, and then to rethink. That's the goal, but boy, is it easier said than done. It's a lifetime's work. And your editor has to give you a lot of space in order to get to the below the fold part of the story. And so. humility. I mean, I often say to, when I was, I was running the FD editorial operations in America for a number of years, and I used to say to people, never forget that on a good day, 
we get 40% of the truth. You know, I think our competitors get 30%, but there's still 60% we don't know. So always be open to listening to people afterwards. Yep. So I've, we've got about 15 minutes again for participants. Uh, please send us your questions. We've got a bunch that I'll get to in a second, but I want to ask a parochial question for a moment. Um, using your superpowers of anthrovision, and I think you should market this as a superpower, by the way, let's turn our attention to business schools, a world that I live in. What are your observations about them? Are we exemplars of WEIRD, which is an acronym I hadn't heard until I read your book, which is Western Educated Individualistic Rich and Democratic? What do you see with your anthrovision eyeglasses on when you look at business education and business schools? You're actually in a much better position to um, answer this than me for two reasons. Firstly, that you know, you did that wonderful study recently of what happened to business schools in World War II, or the last time there was a really big shock. Um, and I think you should go out and write a book about what's happening to business schools now, but in the pandemic. Um, but also because I know that the Oxford Said Business School has tried to widen the lens and look at business in a much more broad-based way than in the past. And for that, I salute you. Um, and you are looking at a lot of social sciences, like things, you know, the environment and things like that. Um, I think the institution of business schools is fascinating because essentially they've been operating a bit like um, seminaries in the medieval church in the sense that they not only create networks of people who are inculcated in the same set of ideas, but they also in many ways actually foster this um, mental framework, um, which has in the past very much assumed that business and finance was an activity aside from the rest of life, it's why you have specialized business schools, um, that it, much of it was defined and mediated through money, which is why you have all these corporate accounting courses, that everything that really mattered could be captured on the balance sheet, which is again, why there's been a lot of focus on corporate accounting. And that it was a game that people played at certain stages in their career, so they had to go while they were young and be inculcated and then move on. And, you know, all of those on one level, like everything, is partly true, but not entirely true. And I think what's going to be interesting in the future is really to see, firstly, whether this Milton Friedman concept of business being all about shareholders and profit and loss, how that gets redefined. Because, of course, we are now looking at an era of stakeholderism. Um, how people actually try and recognize that business can be integrated with other areas of life, be that environment, urban planning, etc etc and also the degree to which people start seeing as business schools or even the idea of studying business and enterprise as something which happens at all stages of life not just as a kind of initiation right into the corporate world um, and i say i know that oxford saeed is thinking about a lot of these ideas in a very creative way and so i do salute salute you for that but i think the debate about this has only just started and one last point i'd leave you with is that if you think about what the pandemic has done to how we see business, the search for the vaccine has sparked a scramble to not only have public-private partnership in a way that, frankly, went totally out of fashion in recent years, but also it had company-to-company -company partnership and collaboration. And again, that was something which was not um, dominant as an idea in the era of, say, Milton Friedman, um, when it was all about, you know, capitalism being red-blooded competition or competition, red, you know, red and tooth and claw, whatever the phrase is. But I suspect going forward, we're going to see growing expectations of public-private partnership and company-wide collaboration, particularly, or cross-company collaboration, particularly 
when handling issues like climate change. And so that's another very interesting shift that I'll be interested to see how business schools do or do not echo that in their syllabuses. Absolutely. So that, thank you for that. And I want to use Harriet Short's question, Harriet from Bath. How would anthropologists go about investigating users' experiences of online video platforms when working from home during the pandemic? There's a chapter in your book about this, so Harriet hasn't had a chance as I have to read the book. But you know, it's, I want to get through in our last few minutes three kind of topical things. One is the pandemic, and there's a couple of others that are particularly relevant today, May 25th. Briefly. Anthropologists had a real challenge when the world went online. They started doing their observations through video um, calls and video platforms. Um, that has disadvantages in the sense that it's actually directed, not undirected, and that's a big problem. But it also has advantages because not only does it allow them to reach a much wider range of people, but it also sometimes puts people they interview or talk to in settings that they feel more comfortable with and the interviewee feels more empowerment and control than otherwise. Tiny example, there's an anthropologist studying low-income people in India, had spent a lot of time talking to rickshaw drivers, um, had always until that point, the rickshaw drivers wouldn't meet them anywhere other than in the anthropologist's office often and put on special suits to come and meet them. When they went onto video platforms, because the rickshaw drivers all have mobile phones, cell phones, they would literally just sit in their rickshaws and chat in their normal clothes and normal environment because they felt more empowered and they weren't as scared of talking to an outsider. Um, and they often did it in their home. So actually anthropologists got a whole bunch more information than about everyday life and a new perspective than they had done before. I was chatting to people at Google, in fact, just um, earlier this week about um, work they're doing to study misinformation using anthropology techniques and conspiracy theorists and last year they went, or two years ago, they went out to places like Idaho to meet them face to face as anthropologists to study them. Now they're doing it through video platform. And again, they get different sets of insights in that different formula. So you can do it, but it's not easy. And um, certainly the, the anthropology world, like everywhere else, is having to change right now as a result. So... We have about eight minutes left. Um, I'm going to break the rule that my producers have told me. The, you know, we're told to never mention the time of day or even the day of week or the date. But today is May 25th, and two things happened. One a year ago today, and the other thing happening today. A year ago, this is the killing of George Floyd. And obviously, that's way too big a topic for us to deal here. However, um, Guillermo's question from Colombia, I think, speaks a little bit to this. The motivations of companies for diversity and inclusion usually comes from economic or marketing regulations. What's your opinion of this from an anthropological lens? Very fair point. There's a lot of box ticking going on. Um, there's a lot of corporate executives going, yikes, we've got to do something. And there's an awful lot of hypocrisy, you know, greenwashing, what I call woke washing, reputation washing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things that we happen to do at Moral Money, and I should spend that Moral Money was a platform I created two years ago, because I could see this area of social silence in the sense that there wasn't a lot of me mainstream media coverage of sustainability, um, and I thought there should be. And, you know, Moral Money calls out a lot of the woke washing and greenwashing because it's out there for sure. However, we try and call it out in a, I wouldn't say forgiving way, but a kind way, sometimes a whimsical way, because the very fact that companies feel the need to even engage in box ticking or woke washing is itself quite remarkable because it reflects the way the zeitgeist overall has changed. 
Um, again, one of the things that anthropology stresses is that you need to look at the entire zeitgeist and the definition of what is acceptable discourse and see how that changes over time. Um, to look at the what Pierre Bourdieu, a French anthropologist, called the, the doxa. It's really important to think about that. And the doxa, the framework for reference, has really changed in recent years. And companies now know that if they don't actually embrace that new doxa, they will suffer. And it's funny how language and group patterns and rituals and behavior and thinking can all intersect and reinforce each other. Because the reality is that even if something like, you know, talking about environmental or diversity issues starts off as a box-ticking enterprise exercise that is full of self-deception or hypocrisy, if that language changes over time, little by little, ideas of what acceptable practice shift too, and then practice changes as well um, in a very subtle way. And so, yes, reputation washing is there. Yes, some of it is hypocritical. Yes, it should be called out. But don't necessarily discount it because actually that's having an impact as well. I guess this is the old fake it until you are it concept. So ritual, um, ritual matter. You know, yeah. anthropologists don't take rituals very seriously. Absolutely. Well, there's a ritual happening today on May 25th, which is a corporate vote at ExxonMobil. Um, and, you know, in your book, you profile Bernard Looney, the, um, and you also talk about, you profiled him in Moral Money recently. But this, you know, maybe we're going from the book to what's going on right now. So this uh, landmark activist move to unseat some of the directors of ExxonMobil is, you know, part of the, the tale that Moral Money is telling. So we don't know what's going to happen, you know, with this this uh, vote, and maybe it doesn't matter. I also note that it's down to three index fund providers. I think you have noted that in your in your story, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street will probably determine what happens. So um, both with your Financial Times hat on and your AnthroVision hat on, help readers or help listeners understand what they should be looking for when they see the news that comes out of ExxonMobil's uh, shareholder vote later today, and more generally, what you're seeing in the oil and gas sector. Um, well, Peter, that's such a great question, because I say if there was ever a tale that indicates why corporate CEOs need an anthropology perspective, it is indeed Exxon. Because, you know, I know I've known some of the senior leaders there for a bit, and, you know, for so many years, they knew that there were these hippie weirdo activists in their eyes who were campaigning over climate change issues. Um, they just discounted them. And it never occurred to them to try and see the world through their eyes or to actually even take them that seriously. Um, now, that's true of most oil and gas companies. Um, it's true of most CEOs. I mean, it goes back to the issue about being cloistered in your own corporate office or basically be too darn busy to break out of tunnel vision. Um, some have tried. I mean, I actually give a hat tip to Bernard Looney at BP, um, who a few years ago did try to go out and spend time listening to activists who were staging protests at the BP headquarters and just try to listen to them at an, with an open mind to hear what they had to say and try and see the world through their eyes. Um, he didn't agree with all of it. Um, certainly Bernard's made plenty of mistakes over the time and it was easy for him to do that because he came in fresh into the company. So I'm not holding him up as you know a paragon of listening per se, but he certainly took a different stance from many other oil and gas companies, including the Exxon leadership. Um, and the reality is that, you know, the Exxon leadership now is suddenly waking up and realizing that two things. Firstly, that they're not in a great position to understand the climate activists or engage with them or win much credibility from them. 
Um, and secondly, because they haven't been looking closely at what's been happening on the ground, they hadn't realized the degree to which the climate activists are essentially teaming up with other types of activists, which are more mainstream um, financiers and have more clout. And that's really what's going on. It pays to listen and it pays to see the world through someone else's eyes, you know, even if you seem to be extraordinarily powerful. So in closing, let me do somebody else's eyes for a moment. Um, in another environment, Jillian, I would, you know, I'm stepping down as dean in a few weeks and I would have invited you to come speak to our students, maybe at the end of their program. So had we had that luxury um, and you'd be giving them their advice about what they should do, maybe what they should draw from AnthroVision or whatever else, uh, what's your valedictory uh, remarks to them? What, what advice would you give these young people? Well, two pieces. Firstly, embrace the anthropologist mindset of trying to immerse yourself periodically in the mindset of someone who seems different from you, not just to gain empathy for somebody else, which you need in a globalized world, but also to look back at yourself more critically and see your own blind spots. I can't stress how important that is. And then from a perspective of someone that has nothing to do with anthropology per se, but it is kind of interlinked, recognize that the 20th century idea about career ladders is out of date. Today, to quote Sheryl Sandberg, it's more like a jungle gym. You know, in my own career, I've gone up, downwards, sideways, swung around the hedges, and then come back and then try to bounce back. Um, and that's the way that most careers are today. And that can seem quite scary at times, but it's also very exciting. But it's also why we have to keep an open mind and stay curious and always remain ready to listen to others and realize that the way that you see the world may not be the only or even the most effective way. What an incredible gift to my students. Thank you so much for giving me the privilege of reading your book, great book, um, before it comes out on June 8th. And for spending this hour with me and with all of our listeners and for holding up a, a mirror to the world through which your reporting and your writing helps us better understand ourselves. So for that gift, Jillian, thank you so very much. Thank you very much indeed. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it and good luck as you, you know, look at business schools and work out how to pass forward. So thank you. My thanks again to Dr. Jillian Tett. My name is Peter Tofano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give us a rating and review, and subscribe to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us for the next episode, which promises to be a high-octane discussion, featuring the boss of the Mercedes Formula One team and the CEO of Petronas, the petrochemical firm that backs them. If you'd like more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.